Hi, everybody. Happy uh, after Christmas, I guess, with... Uh, <laughs> what's the date this will go out? I don't know. Anyway, I'm Father Tony. Uh, Jonathan Stewart is joining me as my co-host. Hello, Jonathan. Happy whatever holiday it is. Yeah, it's, happy it's, not it's, yet it's epiphany. 12, it's 12 days of Christmas. Yeah, so no. one we're on. Yeah, we're, we're on number five, maybe. I don't know. It's hard to, hard to judge. Anyway, let's get into the actual serious part of the show, at least for a little while. We have with us Brent Landau from University of Texas at Austin, who joined us for our video show last week to talk about his book, The Revelation of the Magi, and uh, the interesting text that he translated uh, that goes along with it. So hello, Brent, and thank you for joining us for the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. All right. So uh, let's recap a little bit for our listeners at home who might not have seen the video. What is the Revelation of the Magi and uh, what was your involvement in it? Yeah, so the Revelation of the Magi is uh, the longest and most detailed apocryphal Christian writing about the Magi. Uh, the Magi make sort of um, uh, cursory appearances in other apocryphal infancy gospels. But this text, the Revelation of the Magi, is written from the perspective of the Magi themselves, so it's it's a pseudepigraphon, um, and it is um, basically a, an incredibly complex and detailed story that presents their personal testimony on the coming of Christ. Uh, in this text, the revelation of the Magi, uh, the, the Magi themselves are descendants of Adam's third son, Seth, and um, they live in the land of what the text calls Shear, and it's described as being at the far eastern edge of the inhabited world at the shore of the great ocean. Um, and Shear also shows up in a number of other ancient texts uh, as being someplace roughly equivalent to China. So the Magi seem to be in China, according to this text. Uh, and um, the, the Magi have... Uh, been passing down from Seth this prophecy that Adam had made about a star that was going to signal the birth of God in human form. Uh, and so they've been waiting for this star to appear throughout the generations. Uh, and finally, the text says that the star appears and uh, descends to the mountain that the Magi are praying on uh, and transforms itself uh, into a small, luminous human being, uh, whom the text makes clear is actually Christ himself. So Christ in this text is, is polymorphic. He is capable of transforming his appearance from celestial form to, uh, to human form and back again. He leads the Magi on a journey to Bethlehem to see him born, if you can call it that. He goes into a cave and transforms once again from star into human form. He commissions the Magi to preach uh, his gospel uh, uh, to the people of their country. And uh, he, the Magi return to their country, and when they meet the people, uh, their, their kinspeople, they say, you can experience the things that we experienced with the star take some of this food that the star made for us because uh, when the magi brought their food on the trip it the star's light made the food multiply so they offer the inhabitants some of this food and the people eat it and immediately start seeing visions of the heavenly and earthly jesus 
Um, and we'll talk about this uh, a little bit later, but uh, this may very well be a reference, uh, an embedded reference to a hallucinogen that was used ritually by some early Christian group. The inhabitants of Shear convert to the faith that the Magi are proclaiming. And then in an epilogue to the text that I think was added later, um, the Apostle Thomas shows up and baptizes the Magi and commissions them to preach uh, throughout the entire world. So um, so it's an incredibly long, detailed text. Uh, d despite its, its richness, it had never been translated into English before um, before I did my dissertation on it, uh, which I completed at Harvard in 2008. Uh, so this has been quite a neglected text, uh, but I did my dissertation on it. It's been published. Uh, my translation has been published uh, by HarperCollins. Uh, the title of that book is Revelation of the Magi, The Lost Tale of the Wise Men's Journey to Bethlehem. I'm currently working on a critical edition of it, kind of a more scholarly version of it. But that's essentially what the text is and my involvement with it. Mm -hmm. Great. So uh, we were talking a little bit between the recordings about how uh, this text isn't specifically Gnostic in the way that we typically understand the Gnostic um, kind of umbrella tradition to be, um, but it does it does specifically make reference to Seth. You know, we talk a lot about the Sethians uh, on this show, but uh, this this figure uh, seems to have been important to uh, this group as well. Yeah, so in this text, uh, as, as I said, uh, the Magi are descendants of Seth, so they're, they're part of his lineage. And in a number of, um, you know, Jewish and, and Christian texts, Seth is, is sort of seen to be this, you know, kind of uh, especially virtuous individual. And so the race of Sethians that's descended from him uh, are, are, you know, also share in his virtue. Um, and this seems to be what, what this text has in common, um, or seems to be the tr traditions about Seth that this text is picking up on. There's not a sense that you get in, in kind of Gnostic Sethian literature about Seth being sort of a second Christ figure, mm -hmm. or that, you know, the, the Sethians are sort of dispersed throughout the, uh, you know, the entire world or something like that. They're the true Gnostics. Um, and, you know, in terms of thinking about Gnosticism and how you want to define that, um, for my, my own part, I tend to find it most helpful to think about um, Gnosticism specifically as traditions that view the material world as being the product of an evil or inferior deity. Mm -hmm. um, and if, if we stick to that definition, then this text doesn't seem to have any of that mythology attached to it. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if we want to talk, uh, as, as some people, some scholars are, are quite comfortable doing, uh, talk about Gnosticism as and Gnostic themes more broadly in a way that includes things like mysticism and esotericism, uh, then this text does have some co connections with so-called Gnostic themes, but, mm -hmm. uh, but in sort of the strict sense of, uh, of, of Gnosticism as, you know, a religion involving the demiurge, uh, this doesn't seem to be quite there. Mm 
Yeah, it's big G versus small G Gnosticism, I guess. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, although uh, Transformer Jesus does make an appearance in several Gnostic texts, so that's... Uh, it's true. No, yeah. I mean, in the Apocryphon of John, yep. which is, you know, the classic Gnostic text, um, Jesus is polymorphic uh, in that text as well, and I think he actually appears uh, in the form of a child. Yep. So it's... Uh, and descends from heaven in doing that. Mm-hmm. So it's not as if... Um, uh, this text is, you know, completely has nothing in common with these Gnostic traditions. Yeah, I like the part where he transforms into a giant red fire truck and then a, a jet airplane and then yes, yeah, <laughs> a, and a di- and a dinosaur too. And a dinosaur, yes. <laughs> and Jesus is more than meets the eye. <laughs> Staying on Transformer Jesus. Uh, last last year's Christmas special, uh, we talked about Christology. So um, uh, tying together Transformers, Jesus, Christology, and Christmas, you, you mentioned that in, in the Revelation of the Magi, they, they watch the, the star transforms basically into the baby Jesus. Uh, um, uh, so with, with the Christology of this group, it, it wouldn't be the Christology that, that we know from the Christmas story, or that we think we know, from Matthew and Luke, of, uh, of being born in the, from Mary's womb as a, as a you know, God incarnate. Would, would it be, you know, the uh, the star somehow coming down and transforming into the baby Jesus, or is it spelled out, or...? Yeah, no, that's a good question. So, essentially, what this text could be described as is um, probably something you talked about on the show. Uh, it is that it's basically docetic, mm-hmm. or or is um, characteristic of docetism, which is this notion or this heresy, quote unquote, that um, uh, that Jesus never was actually human, um, fully completely human, that he just uh, sort of appeared to be human in a really superficial way, and that's essentially what this text would say. It it you know. Jesus isn't really born from Mary. I mean, that's never described in the text, um, even though Mary is mentioned in the text. Uh, Here, Jesus just descends and transforms from a star uh, into a human being. And if we look at some of the other um, apocryphal infancy gospels, uh, there are similar docetic elements where Jesus sort of just sort of materializes out of nowhere, that he just sort of appears in the room where Mary and Joseph are, and all of a sudden she's not pregnant anymore, yeah. um, or or things like that. So this text is, um, you know, if we're thinking in terms of Christologies and defining its Christology, it's got a, um, it's got a strongly docetic Christology. Yeah, I believe Jonathan calls that the uh, Jesus never pooped theory. <laughs> yes, there's that. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. yeah, the, uh, you know, um, yes, Valentinus had the had the business about Jesus's digestive system, which is great. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Very constipated. Um, not, not, not to get too silly right away. Sometimes when we do the podcast, we get silly near the end of the show. But I, I do want to know, so the, we'll, we'll come back to this as well, but like your, your theories of, about this community, and I just want to clarify for listeners that, uh, we're not making the claim that the biblical magi, if, the, if they existed, were, were tripping out on drugs, that, but possibly the community that, that, that made this text used hallucinogenics in their, um, in their, uh, their rituals and uh, worked it into the plot. So we'll come back to that later. But, uh, but Brent, I want to know 
have crazy people been emailing you to say that this proves that Jesus was a fake alien? I know it's a silly question, and it's not something I I believe or that I believe the text says. But I just see like this this star coming down and changing into a human, and I'm like, so, like there's got to be wackos out there being like, see, I told you the proof that he's a space alien. Yeah, it, it's um. That's another article I'm actually in the process of revising right now, which is the reception of the revelation of the Magi among New Age religious groups and ufologists, mm -hmm. uh, enthusiasts, uh, uh, people who are enthusiastic about UFOs. And no, I mean, it's, I get, oh, I don't know how many, I, I get probably uh, 10 10 emails a year, something like that, sometimes more, sometimes less, from people who, you know, really and truly believe that um, they know what this text means. Or oftentimes, and, and this is interesting and it's and it's worth thinking about, um, you know, people who seem who who claim to have had sort of experience with some, you know, sentient ball of light or something like that, you know. Mm -hmm. um, there are, and, and I don't know that I would necessarily characterize these as as UFO encounters or something like that, because that's usually thought of as spacecraft, but, um, you know, sort of, th there's a fair amount of literature out there on kind of encounters with anomalous light forms or balls of light, and uh, yeah, a number of the people who have who've experienced these things have have written me it's i mean on the one hand my knee-jerk response is oh geez uh, you know another another weirdo um on the other hand i i appreciate their um you know their willingness to come and you know actually share this with me to mm -hmm. that they feel like they can talk about this with me um so i think that's i think that's great um it's uh yeah, it's it, it's a it's a strange position for a scholar to be. <laughs> yeah, a fair amount of feedback. No, I know. I think that's Jonathan's. Uh, we have. Oh, okay, now it's gone. Uh, nope, not gone. Is there? Okay, we're gonna we're gonna try and call him back and see if we can fix that connection. But yeah, okay. the, the the anthropology of it is almost as interesting as the. You know the text itself. How certainly how the people who originally wrote it would have used it, and then you know how people today view it and and the mm -hmm. importance they give to it. That's that's got to mm -hmm. be a whole separate set of scholarship. <laughs> yeah, and it's you know I mean it's quite strange to and I say and I talk about this in the article where it's sort of strange being in the position of a scholar where you know that they're they're writing. They're writing you about this not because you're just sort of an expert on the text, but because you're the one who published the English translation, uh -huh. and that you know, like I've a sort in some way been the 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 conduit, other than Harper Collins and Rupert <laughs> Murdoch, um, but I've been sort of the conduit through which this text is entering New Age religious communities. So that's that's just kind of. A weird position for a scholar to be in. Who, right. Well, know, it wasn't what you were expecting when you were translating the text, I'm no, sure. <laughs> no, definitely not. That's very interesting. It seems we have Jonathan back. Mm -hmm. Kind of. Oh, maybe, maybe not. All right. Well, we'll, uh, we'll blame that on, on uh, what does he have up there, Cox or Comcast? Or I don't know. <laughs> anyway, we'll, we'll try and get him back again. Okay. Um, 
so uh, this text um, this text has some things to say about other religions as well, doesn't it? Or it implies does, it? yeah. So one one of the things that's very interesting about this text is that at several points throughout it, it actually talks, uh, it, it makes uh, sort of statements about Christ in some way being the underpinning of all of humanity's religious revelations. Uh, the first time this happens is when the star actually appears to the Magi the first time on, on top of their mountain. And, and they're overjoyed about this. Um, and yet the star says to them, this is just, um, you know, I've appeared to you as was fitting for your faith, for your religion, just as I appeared to the, um, the Israelites through the prophets. And uh, the, Jesus says, I'm, I'm a ray of light. I have shown everywhere in the uh, entire world. And, you know, I'm here to fulfill the commandments of my father uh, in, in, uh, in every land. So Christ asserts this. The Magi tell people that, you know, this being has, has worshipers throughout the entire world. And um, so it's, it's this, and, and when you factor in the sort of polymorphy aspect of it, that Christ can, trans, can, can appear, you know, anywhere he wants um, at any time in any form, then, yeah, I think what you've got in this text is a fairly unusual theology of world religions, if you want to call it that, mm -hmm. um, that, that suggests that religious diversity is actually due to Christ himself to Christ making appearances to a, a multiplicity of, uh, of peoples throughout the world. And this, you know, if, if my reading of the Revelation of the Magi is correct on that front, then this text is quite unusual compared to other Christian attitudes toward, um, toward other religions. Mm -hmm. Essentially, the vast majority of early Christians who talk about other religions uh, either say that you know other people's gods either are you know products of human imagination that is they don't exist mm -hmm. um, or that they do exist but they're actually demons yeah. they're you know malevolent beings they're not actually you know other uh, other gods out there so that they're you know sinister or evil or something like that and this text doesn't go in either of those directions it essentially seems to be saying well that they're different appearances of of Christ. Um, they're Christ in different forms. So, um, you know, and certain scholars of religion have tried to characterize attitudes toward religious diversity in terms of inclusivism, exclusivism, and pluralism. Exclusivism is where you just say, well, we've got the truth. Yeah. No, no other religions do. Um, Inclusivism is where you say yes, other religions do have truth, um, but they, you know, they're sort of they're saved through our religion. So Jesus saves Buddhists, and Jesus saves Hindus and Muslims and things like that. Pluralism essentially says, um, you know, there are many different paths to salvation. There are many different um, religious realities out there. Um, I think. You know, some days I think this text is inclusive. Some days I think it's pluralistic. I mean, it's clearly presenting the Magi's, you know, uh, divine being as 
Jesus, but on the other hand, uh, it doesn't, it never uses the term Jesus, at least in the first person section of it, which I yeah. think is the earliest part. Uh, so, so it's got quite an, uh, quite an interesting perspective. Yeah, that's what I, another thing I wanted to ask you about, like it, it, um, it refers to, uh, it refers to the being as Christ almost exclusively, right, throughout the, the beginning part and, um, it, it, you know, interestingly enough, what it, it, it never, it never does. So the, um, so the terms, the most familiar terms that you would use for this being Jesus or Christ or Jesus Christ, um, only show up in the Apostle Thomas section. Oh, okay. At, at the very end of the text. And that's actually one of the reasons that I've argued that the Thomas section is is secondary. Mm-hmm. Is it seems really, really invested in saying, okay, this this is this being's name. This is Jesus. This is Jesus Christ. Um, whereas earlier in the text, in the first person plural section, you know, that's supposedly written by the Magi, um, you know, Christ is... Um, referred to as the son of the father or our guide or our leader or our star or something like that. Um, lots of different epithets, mm-hmm. but it never uses the familiar terms Jesus or Christ. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I think is actually going on um, with the addition of the Apostle Thomas ending is that whoever added that Apostle Thomas ending was uncomfortable with the implications that, okay, these magi and they're in the inhabitants of the land of Sheer have essentially become Christians without, like, becoming part of the church, mm-hmm. um, you know, or they become followers of Christ without knowing really anything about about him by that name. So the the Apostle Thomas section seems to be very concerned to sort of domesticate this text, to take it and say, okay, they've been baptized, they know that, you know, Jesus is the person who... Um, who appeared to them, and you know now they've had an apostle sanction them, and all of that, and and they're you know they're in ecclesiastical good good shape, uh, which the you know first person plural part of the text, the earliest form, didn't seem to be particularly concerned about. Right, but they certainly did ha- have some access to other texts, other of the you know either canonical or extra canonical texts, right? Like the the story of. Um, of the birth of Jesus or the, the Magi traveling there in the first place came from somewhere. Yeah, no, abs- absolutely. I mean, this text relies quite heavily on a number of passages within um, within the Hebrew scriptures and uh, the in early Christian writings. Uh, you know, most obviously the, you know, story of the Magi in, in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Mm-hmm. Um, what's interesting is that the the Matthew story is obviously it's it's the basis of this, but the text only views that as sort of its most basic narrative skeleton, and it really it departs from Matthew's narrative in quite a few places. And in terms of the sort of language that it uses, that you know that Jesus speaks in, and that it uses to describe Jesus, it's very Johannine. It's very uh, very much indebted to the to John's gospel. Mm-hmm. So you know, it refers to Jesus as the Son of the Father, um, uh, also often calling him the Father, the Father who sent me, which is a very Johannine thing to say. Um, uh, and you know, lots of Johannine metaphors uh, uh, being used: light of the world, um, bread of life, 
Good Shepherd. Um, you know, the text is just sort of suffused with Johannine language, and it may very well be that um, the very idea of identifying Jesus with the Star of Bethlehem, of saying that Jesus and the Star of Bethlehem are the same thing, mm-hmm. may have ultimately been um, you know, inspired by the statement in John's Gospel of, I am the light of the world, mm-hmm. um, which you know, the text directly cites. Um, and you know, in John's Gospel, that's sort of seen as a metaphor. You know, Jesus is, is not physically luminous himself. But, you know, this text almost takes up that Johannine statement and sort of, um, you know, views it absolutely literally so that Jesus is actually a star, which is a text that no, uh, which is an interpretation that no other text makes. Mm -hmm. Jonathan, are you back yet? Uh, I am am back. Okay. Uh, Some technical issues. It's cutting in and out, but I got got most of that. Yeah, technology, man. (laughs) <laughs> Did I miss anything? Do you, is there is there anything that you're dying to know? Um. Yeah, uh, Brent, I, I read this uh, this text a few years ago, um, um, and and I really enjoyed it. Uh, um, and and I did notice, uh, you know, surfing around the net even back then that that it um it has kind of sparked a, a large public interest even outside of outside of drugs and outside of uh, space aliens. Well, <laughs> why do you think uh you know like I seem like Outlets that normally don't cover apocryphal uh, biblical texts talk about this uh, this book. Well, why do you think it kind of grabbed the public's attention? Well, I think um, it's it's one of a number of texts that have sort of come out. I mean, the the big answer to any of this is Da Vinci Code, hmm. um, by which I mean that since the Da Vinci Code came out in. 2004, I think, yeah. Yeah, 2004, that... Um, you know, there has been just this heightened interest in non-canonical texts of of sort of all shapes and sizes. Because one of the big statements that the that's made in the Da Vinci Code book is that oh, there were all these gospels out uh, outside of the uh, New Testament that you know were excluded and suppressed and things like that. So um, y- you know, th- there have been a number of new apocryphal texts that have come to light since that um, the you know the most spectacular um, uh, in, certainly in terms of its rollout was the Gospel of Judas mm-hmm. uh, which was I believe 2006 yeah. something like that uh, uh, over Easter by National Geographic and you know that was the only religious text in history to have a marketing team <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. Or, you know, or at least the first text, because yeah. I'd say that Revelation of the Magi did too. Sure. <laughs> um, to, to some degree. Uh, you know, but the the Gospel of Judas sort of was showed how to roll out an apocryphal text. And I think that between the Da Vinci Code and then the release of the Gospel of Judas, that the 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 situation was sort of you know the time was ripe for other interesting and that's the key word interesting mm-hmm. apocryphal writings to uh you know to sort of see the light of day so um you know this text i think was to some degree in the right place at the right time um on the other hand it has the benefit 
of, um, you know, unlike, say, the Gospel of, of Judas, which was released around Easter, uh, and, you know, that text has a lot to do with Jesus's passion and everything like that, you know, the revelation of the Magi is about people who are part of the Christmas story. Mm -hmm. And so I think if we're trying to account for why the text um, had, uh, you know, had had a fair amount of influence, a fair amount of impact when it was released, we can, you know, pinpoint the fact that, oh, well, it was released in November of 2010, and there was marketing uh, that HarperCollins did all through uh, sort of the, the run-up to Christmas. Uh, the, the first year that it was released, I did interviews with... Um, uh, with Diane Rehm, uh, also with uh, on Nightline, and with Fox News, they were actually really nice, surprisingly. <laughs> um, you know, quite pleasant folks. Uh, but you know, there was a bunch of different stuff that way. So much so that uh, on I think it was Christmas Eve, I was checking my Amazon sales rank, and it had gotten up to number thirty-four. Uh, on on Amazon, which was I wish I had known how to do a screen cap back then. <laughs> It'd be nice to nice to have that. I was actually beating Sarah Palin's biography at that point, oh, which nice. which was nice. Yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, in terms of marketing, it was uh, you know sort of a perfect storm with with the Christmas holiday, and I think that just people are quite interested in general in the three wise men uh, or the or the three magi or the three kings, whatever people call them. Um, one of the things I found in sort of being an expert on the wise men is that I can go to, you know, cocktail parties with a bunch of people who aren't biblical scholars and, you know, talk talk about what I'm doing. And, you know, if I was doing something that was, you know, really integral to, like, the beginnings of Christianity, like something with the Apostle Paul, lots of people don't know anything about the Apostle Paul. But everybody's heard about the wise men. Mm -hmm. So they're just sort of, um, you know, they're they're they've they're they're fairly well known cultural figures, I suppose. Yeah, very interesting. Um, I, I I've been fascinated with them as you know the the little tiny bits of them that we get throughout the you know like in Matthew, just like. Oh yeah, these other guys showed up and they brought some stuff. Like, yeah, you know, no, there's a lot more there. Tell me about those people. <laughs> no, it's. I mean, and that's part of it too. Is it's uh, you know Matthew's story is so incredibly cryptic. It doesn't. It, it what does it what it tells us is you know that there were these people who saw this star that signified the birth of the king of the Jews, and that they brought gifts to him. So it was clearly something very important, but we're not told who these magi were. We're not told, told where they were from, how many of them there were, um, and how they went from, how, how they knew that the star signified the birth of the king of the Jews. Yeah. All of that stuff is left unresolved in Matthew's story. And so it's, I mean, I assume that Matthew knew more about these people you know, and and sort of the tradition around them, than than he told us. Uh, it's an incredibly cryptic story, and um, you know, there's there's been lots of speculation throughout history about who these guys were. Yeah, his editor cut it for space. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm reminded of the uh, of the scene from Life of Brian um, at the <laughs> beginning of the movie, where the where one of where one of them pushes Mary. Yeah. <laughs> After they realize they've gone, or it's not Mary, of course. It's 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 Brian's mother, whoever. Brian's Brian. mother, right? So uh, after they realize they went to the, 
I mean, that's the thing about having a star, you know, kind of mark out a house is, yeah. you know, that can be a little ambiguous. <laughs> Not as specific as you might like. Right next door, you know. Yeah. Brent, <laughs> uh, uh, I have to bring it back to hallucinogenics, possibly mushrooms, hallucinogenics again. This is, this is how we're going to get a lot of sweet YouTube hits. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But, um, you, you wait till but, you see the keywords I put on this video. <laughs> I am. I'm, I'm curious. I, I know that you uh, you recently presented a paper with, uh, with with some of your theories on um, on the possible use of hallucinogenics uh, in this text by the community. They made this text, and I, and I know you're going to publish that paper. But I'm wondering what sort of the early scholarly reaction is to um, to this, because because again, as you touched on in the video show, I think sometimes even definitely in the church or in churches, and uh, and sometimes in scholarly um, discourse, we're fine talking about other religions using drugs, but we don't want to. Um, we don't want to talk about early Christians using drugs. I don't know why they're the exception. And uh, I, I also think about they're always uh, the exception. Yeah, yeah. And I also think about like the more sensational claims of somebody like John Allegro. Right? He he said yeah. that uh, he started off as a, a pretty mainstream scholar of his time, and then he kind of ended up saying that Christianity was a, a sex and hallucinogenic mushrooms cult. Right, uh, and right. That, that didn't go over very well, as it probably should have done. So I'm just no. wondering what... what yeah, I mean, about. he... Yeah, so I think in terms of... In terms of the, the theory of, you know, theories of various things being uh, hallucinogens, the proponents who have said, oh, you know, Christianity is a magic mushroom cult, or the Eucharist is a hallucinogen, or manna is a hallucinogen or mithraism is a hallucinogenic cult. The, the One of the problems with most of those theories is that they're just sort of repetitive. They're saying, okay, let's take this ritual, in, uh, ancient ritual involving a uh, food substance and say, oh, it was actually a hallucinogenic substance. Well, yeah, I mean, probably some of them were, but probably some of them were regular food, too. I mean, people eat regular food in um, in rituals, uh, you know, religious rituals that, that aren't hallucinogenic. So I think that, you know, some of the previous people to argue for hallucinogens, references to hallucinogens in ancient Mediterranean religions, um, you know, just sort of, gave those sorts of inquiries a bad name by, you know, just seeing hallucinogens everywhere, um, as opposed to actually, you know, a few really solid cases. Um, you know, the, the, the Soma substance, Soma or Helma, which shows up in the Vedas, uh, Vedic rituals, and also uh, the Avestan uh, Zoroastrian rituals. Um, Gordon Wasson, who, who made the argument about Soma, um, and also, I think maybe about, oh, maybe it was the Eleusinian Mysteries or something like that, you know, that there have been actually a couple fairly, you know, solid cases that have been made that way, but most of them have not been of very good quality. Um, in terms of how scholars have reacted to my arguments, you know, there have been the people who have wanted to say, well, you know, you could just, you know, this could just be sort of disguised, uh, you know, references to the to the Eucharist or something like that. I think most people who have who have heard the um, heard the paper have uh, generally been either sympathetic or have told me that they are quite convinced about it. I you know my personal take on this is that 
I don't know that this is necessarily a reference to a hallucinogen, but it's the most compelling example in any ancient Christian literature I know of that that could be a hallucinogen because no other text has a substance where there's such a strong causal connection between ingesting the substance and then seeing, you know, visions of the heavenly and earthly Jesus. Um, you know, in in this text, they're they're you know linked. One happens right after the other. The text makes it clear that it's because of eating this substance that the person is seeing these things. So, um, you know, I I'd be willing to consider other explanations for it, but it's. I still, at the end of the day, find myself really tempted to, uh, to to regard this as a reference to some ritual practice that involved a hallucinogen because it just seems it just seems so clear. Right. Exactly. Um, what else would, do I have on the list? Well, I think uh, um, I, I think we're almost at our uh, at our mark. Uh, mm -hmm. it's, it's been a wonderful discussion, Brent, and uh, um, I just wanted to thank you for coming both on the video show and the podcast after. Absolutely. Yeah, no, it's been wonderful. It's been great talking to both of you. Yeah, and uh, we look forward to um, when you release your next paper, and, uh, and, and, and keep us posted on the, um, the, uh, the, the thing you're doing about the uh, New Age uh, practitioners and... Um, and how they react to this text and, and things. Yeah, yeah. No, so I've got a couple fun articles coming out on the Revelation of the Magi, and then the next book project, which you might eventually be interested in, is uh, conspiracy theories about Jesus. So you know, if uh, you know arguments, if you've ever heard people say, "Well, Jesus didn't exist," or "Jesus didn't die on the cross," or "Jesus went to India," or things like that, um, you know, that's that's the sort of stuff this book is going to take up, and that's going to be published by Oxford University Press. So I'm basically getting to work on that right now oh yeah that's right up our alley we'll <laughs> we'll definitely talk <laughs> to you might, about that i thought it might appeal <laughs> all right okay well uh everybody then thank you for listening to our podcast make sure you check out our patreon campaign you can help us to grow the gnostic wisdom network and to produce more and better programs for you uh with interesting topics and guests like today's so uh, please visit patreon.com slash gnostic. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash gnostic. And uh, once again, please pick up the book, The Revelation of the Magi. You can find it on Amazon uh, by Brent Landau. And thank you once again for joining us. Thank you. It's been great to be here. All right. And for everybody listening along at home, we'll see you next week. This has been a production of the Gnostic Wisdom Network. For more information about this and all of GWN's programming, please visit GnosticWisdom.net. The opinions expressed in this show do not necessarily reflect the opinions of GWN, the Apostolic Joannite Church, or any other organization. This has been released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License and is brought to you by the generous support of our patrons. To support our programs and become a patron, please visit patreon.com slash gnostic. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash g-n-o-s-t-i-c.
Thank you.